Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And if you hear the occasional bird song in the background of this podcast, I'm not playing it in an attempt to sort of romanticise and get a bit of background sound. I'm on the road in my never-ending tour like Bob Dylan and heading for Brighton. I'm actually recording this outside in rather beautiful scenery en route for a live gig in um, Hove, actually, at the Old Market Theatre. So I'm not in the wonderful legendary Podmasters studio where I often uh, record the podcast. Uh, so that's that's the explanation, the never-ending tour. Anyway, if it's okay with all of you, I will uh, reflect in a moment on the implications of the Raab saga and bullying and i will probably say things spoiler alert that a lot of you will disagree with let's see and then we come to your questions lots on uh, the interview i did with douglas alexander the former cabinet minister now a candidate for labor at the next general election uh, in scotland um, and on many other issues too So they're coming up. Before all of that, an alert that Patreon subscribers, those who subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, uh, we're going to do the bonus for May, a kind of live get-together. A link will be sent to you and we can all get together live um, in uh, early May. The date's been set. Uh, Because I'm on the road, I haven't got it on me, but if you go to Patreon, you'll get it and we're all going to be on video and it's going to be have an intimacy about it and if you're hearing this on monday uh, it'll be too late for most of you live at the old market theater in hove for rock and roll politics and then on may the 15th in london at uh, king's place so there's a lot going on now rab the fall of rab his um, resignation at the end of last week uh, following the review into allegations that he was a bully. Bullying is one of these imprecise terms uh, that is punctuating politics at the moment. I'll give examples of other imprecise terms shortly. Uh, let me say right away that some of the Tory-supporting newspapers have shown their sort of clunky hypocrisy in their coverage of the Raab case, they have been predictably sympathetic to Raab, whereas if it had been a Labour cabinet minister, he or she would have been slaughtered by them. And we have an example of that when the Speaker, John Burko, was accused of bullying. The same newspapers who are being sympathetic to Raab slaughtered him. It was a slaughter that kind of fed on itself and made it harder for Burko to put a case. While I'm about to say uh, something which you're going to disagree with, I make that observation uh, that the mighty Tory newspapers, although declining in sales, continue to shape a mood around a drama. And uh, boy, has Rob had an audience, and I hear now the speculation he'll be offered a show on GB News. Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him in the schedule along with Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg and all the others in that um, Ofcom-backed channel. However, 
What I think is interesting about this case is, first of all, we begin with a fundamental imbalance in my view. Often uh, there is a perception about cabinet ministers that they are powerful and mighty, almost all-conquering. And that's a perception I find in all kinds of areas, the media, the business sector. Oh, oh, wow, we've met a cabinet minister. We've had a conversation with them. And yet most of them are pretty powerless for lots of different reasons. One, Britain is increasingly presidential in culture and practice. And what a prime minister says and does at key moments is all important not what a cabinet thinks. So to give an example, Rishi Sunak set out his kind of five missions for his premiership. They were done without consultation with the cabinet. They were done in consultation with his colleagues in number 10. And then the cabinet ministers dance around them. Dominic Raab was called his deputy prime minister, but the term in practice was close to uh, meaningless um, because... The one he was closest to in ministerial terms was Oliver Dowden, who is now the Deputy Prime Minister. Most voters, by the way, would not have clocked any of this. They would hardly have clocked the Raab fall. They won't have heard of Oliver Dowden. So the power is concentrated on the whole in number 10 until things go badly wrong, when power starts to seep away from a weak Prime Minister, as we saw with Johnson and Truss. The assumption of mightiness is false even on that very basic premise about where power lies within an elected government. But beyond that, cabinet ministers don't last very long. It's very interesting uh, when you sometimes in a reshuffle see a new cabinet minister arrive at a department to be greeted by their permanent secretary rather grandly by the imperious uh, permanent secretary, um, welcoming them fleetingly to the fiefdom that is the permanent secretaries. Now, I know the cabinet minister comes in and in some cases can be reforming and make an impact through character or will or an ideological coherence, but most of them last for much less time than their senior civil servants. They begin in a different place. The senior civil servants have, in effect, a job for life. Cabinet ministers could lose their cabinet post very quickly, most do, and anyway could lose their seat. I mean, Raab, if he had not gone uh, over the bullying saga, could well have lost his seat at the next election. I now suspect he won't even stand. When you have uh, been forced out with these bullying claims around you, it's very hard to come back because, you know, what do you do? Go on an anger management course and say you've changed or whatever. He's in a seat which is quite vulnerable to a Labour swing. And so uh, that's probably it for Raab, for the senior civil servants who uh, could not cope with him. Uh, They were there before he arrived. They are there after he arrived. And these ministers are gone very quickly. It's been observed recently, you know, a Chancellor of the Exchequer for about three days in the Johnson final days and then another one and another one and so on. But that's not the point. It was always like this. Look at the number of transport secretaries in the new Labour era, which was a period of relative political stability compared with what we've experienced. There were more transport secretaries than there were reliable trains running. 
Not only are they powerless within the dynamics of a government, they are because they are there for such a short tenure, dependent on the patronage and goodwill of a prime minister, fearing at any moment a foot out of place, a word out of place, and they can be slaughtered by the newspapers and then a weak prime minister is forced to sack them. Look at Peter Mandelson, sacked twice by Tony Blair in spite of being a close friend and ally. So there's all of that. The dynamic, I think, favours the civil servants, not ministers. And then there is this issue of what is a bully. Now, I've read the report into Raab. I do not think it is definitive in uh, establishing what is a bully and that it applies to him. He may well have been a bastard to work for. He may have not been able to read a room. He may have misjudged the way he dealt with people. And all of that is terrible. But you have to be clear when you are wrecking a cabinet minister's career that you are doing so with a degree of precision. And I speak with a lot of interest in this. I followed the John Burko case very carefully. And I was never of the view that Burko was a bully. He was willful. He was determined to bring about change in Parliament. He was up against some very small-c conservative clerks who had enjoyed a rather quiet, unchanging life with speakers just loving the ritual and the glitter and the ceremony and the glory. Um, And in came Burko and said he wanted a crash and he wanted to bring ministers to the House of Commons to answer urgent questions on a regular basis, etc., etc. The clerks unused to this rather hectic pace and sense of change and tradition being challenged, challenged Burko, Burko challenged back. He no doubt did so angrily at times, but was that bullying? I'm sure he was sometimes insensitive to people's feelings. Was that bullying? And with Raab, this is not a defense of his record. His record has a sort of perverse shape to it in that, you know, part of the problem is he was clearly a workaholic. And yet when he was on holiday, when there was withdrawal from Afghanistan, he did bugger all. He claims that um, he was prevented for doing more or that his behavior was explained because he was an ardent reformer. And yet there is little sign of constructive legislative reform uh, that he will leave behind. Um, So this isn't a defense of him or his record. But I am worried about this term bully for this reason, not because I'm bothered about him, but because you could quite easily have a rather impressive minister, absolutely driven to do some good things, frustrated by civil servants, resisting the practicalities or whatever of the legislative proposals, big rows. One of them complains they've been bullied. And in the current climate, I think that minister would be in danger of being sacked, of losing their job. And we are in this era of imprecision, in the banding about of ubiquitous terms. Uh, Bully is one of them. You know, at the BBC, people used to shout at people and 
Uh, I used to kind of see people in a terrible state with editors and all the rest of it. And I don't justify any of the behavior and nor would I argue for one second that it gets the best out of people. It doesn't. But you've got to be careful about this term. And if you are of the view, and you should be, that bullies should be sacked for bullying, I think we need more precision uh, about exactly what it means. Because there are people who can be bloody awkward, uh, who uh, can be uh, kind of sweepingly insensitive, and sometimes you just have to adapt to it. I suspect with Rabi, he was not going to be there for much longer. If the polls are right, he would have been in opposition quite soon if he had held his seat. There is an argument to adapt as much as you can. Yes, maybe complain, but it's this term bully with the sackable consequences, which I think is too vague at the moment. And why are we in this era of imprecise terms, bully? We've talked a lot on this contest about the word reform. Just mention the word reform and gullible newspapers like The Times melt enthusiastically you know, Wes Streeting says, oh, I believe in reform of the NHS, leader in the Times, at last Labour are up for reform. Jeremy Corbyn was an ardent reformer of the NHS. He was going to reform it to kick out any connection with the private sector in, in imprecise ways again, actually. Because as we've discussed, the GP network is in effect a privately run operation within the NHS, etc., etc. Virtually everyone's a reformer. In the NHS. I don't know anyone who sits there saying, well, the messy compromises of the Cameron Andrew Lansley reforms on top of some of the Blairite reforms, that does it. Don't nothing else needs to change. It's a work of such perfection. So of course we're all reformers. What kind of reform? And the degree to which that has to be balanced with increased investment. That's the bit the Times doesn't buy. You know, the editor of the Times, when he wants to improve his, no doubt, lavishly decorated house, will not just think, if I reform the way I run things in this house, that'll do it. He'll want to do things to it and spend on it, you know. So it's a combination of the two. Reform. Modernisation. We need to modernise Britain. Well, again, yes, but what precisely does that mean? And as we've discussed many times on this podcast, centrist is another term which people use without any precision at all. Rory Stewart, much uh, admired these days, once said, defined it as being tolerant of others in, in, in discussing things. Well, that's, thank, that, that explains how we're going to revive this economy with no growth. So I think we're in this era of imprecise terms because they're a replacement for the kind of deep thinking, great passionate battles around values and the policies that arose from them that have applied to British politics, you, you, you know, for kind of hundreds of years, but have faded recently with a kind of more technocratic debate around competence versus incompetence. In that vacuum, things like a bullying, in inverted commas, acquires huge significance because there's nothing much else to focus on, even though nothing in this bloody country works. Until we get onto these bigger debates, there will be utterly 
uh, banal uh, arguments about whether X is a bully, whether someone is pro-reform or anti-reform, whether someone is for modernization or against modernization, whether someone is on the center ground and should be hailed for the proclamation that he or she is on the center ground. We need bigger debates, but also on these terms, nothing wrong with these terms, but they need to be absolutely clearly defined. And of course, bullying should be a sacking offence. But what is a bully? And if it's a wholly subjective thing, like I don't think Burko was or is a bully, is that just me being subjective because I, I follow closely what he was trying to do and the degree of resistance he faced? And in which case, give me the official definitive version of being a bully we'll all sign up to it and if people violate it get rid of them anyway i told you you'd all disagree and write to me as ever email make your points in whatever form uh, you would like but it's at steverick14 at icloud.com okay and now if it's all right with all of you over to your questions And let's begin with one because it's a very interesting theme which comes up here uh, a lot and in a way it has with the Raab affair where I said at the beginning uh, that although I have some sympathy with Raab over the manner of his dismissal or the nature of it really, I'm fully aware that those papers who take a very soft view on Raab um, would have slaughtered a uh, Labour cabinet minister. The bar is always set much lower uh, with the British media. Paul Cooper poses the question, uh, is, what do you understand is the key components of the UK Conservative vote? We know they've been winning since 1834. So what makes the current Tories tick? What is the nature of the appeal? And I think it's, it is an interesting question, because even now there is talk, you know, of Sunak leading a recovery, can Starmer blow it and all the rest of it. I think there are three things. One, uh, we've discussed a lot on this podcast, and I'm going to return to it because I think it is so important. Conservatives have seized the term freedom and made it their own. And uh, recently, there has been no attempt by Labour to reclaim it, which they should do. Uh, because no voter thinks in a vox pop that they are against freedom. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm against it. I don't want to be free. They all want freedom. Thatcher made it the essence of her pitch in the 1979 election, freedom. And in a way, they've continued to keep hold of the term for them. Uh, like for a long time, it was Tory conferences alone that flew the Union Jack and claimed implicitly that they are the patriotic party when all parties are patriotic, actually. They all want to do the best. Else, the, the, you know, Which one wants to do the worst for the country they're seeking to represent? So I think that's one reason. I think the second is that without any justification, they tend to be seen as the party of economic competence and how they pull this off you know all the cliche oh, the left think with their uh, heart the right think with their head when in the 80s uh, there were deep avoidable recessions when the privatization program harold Macmillan said they've sold off the family silver on the cheap 
a lot of assets were sold cheaply, very expensive to buy back, a problem to commit to renationalize. But somehow or other, then and now, to some extent, in spite of all the chaos, they are seen as the party of uh, economic competence, which is why they only tend to lose when there has been the most vivid earthquake to the British economy. In other words, the Truss era and uh, the breakup, the breakdown of Britain's membership of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992. And the third reason is the media. Frankly, the newspapers brainwash voters, they influence the way the BBC dares to view politics. And I think the three together uh, explain why England, at least, uh, tends to vote Conservative. I don't think England is naturally Conservative. Why should it be? Um, But I think those are the factors, Paul. Okay, Andrew O'Brien, who is our think tank correspondent, because he's director of policy and impact at Demos. So we need a think tank uh, correspondent in the rock and roll politics cooperative. We need, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Although we're all thinkers, but a think tank specialist, we need one of those. Andrew O'Brien writes, uh, you made a a perceptive point about growth uh, in a podcast last week. The truth is, despite banging on about it constantly, neither party has anything constructive to say. My theory on this is that both parties refuse to confront the elephant in the room, namely the extreme extreme capitalism that we have in the UK. Not my words, but Professor Colin Mayer. Sign him up as well, Andrew. Get him into our cooperative. Business in the UK is too short-term in view, too focused on dividends and share buybacks. This means that we don't see enough long-term investment in people, places and new technology. Government can cut taxes, raise spending, try incentives, but until you confront the fundamental structure of the economy, it can't make much difference. Just look at the coalition's corporation tax cuts, £80 billion in cost and nothing much to show for it. Yeah, this is where I think we need to delve deeper. The short-termism, the um, phrase which I struggled to pronounce, extreme capitalism, uh, we need to look more at this because this country's growth rate is part of the explanation for the dire public services and they feed off each other. You know, if you have rubbish transport in the north of England, it's harder to be productive to give one example of many. Yeah, thank you for that, Andrew. We need to... Uh, yeah, uh, who who should we interview about this, Andrew, if not you, Andrew, as our think tank correspondent? Maybe we should. Now, over, talking of our correspondents, over to our French correspondent, Dominique Jewell. But Dominique now... By the way, Dominique, I think I read you in The Times, a letter in The Times the other day. You get around. And proof of this is that Dominique is this week in Amsterdam. A few days ago, I was sitting on a bench on the bank of a canal in Amsterdam. A group of Dutch students sailed past on two pleasure boats. One of the groups suddenly stood up and shouted, Let's go to England! In English, this was met with a torrent of mockery and shouts of stop the boats. It seems that at least some of the current generation of young Europeans is watching political developments in the UK and is not impressed. It is so funny, isn't it? Because all this, oh yeah, you watch, you watch Britain, we're going to protect our 
borders with these boat no none of these boats kind of thing and everyone think oh yeah macho england yeah macho britain showing the world you know that we've taken back control and they're laughing at us in some parts of uh well certainly in amsterdam with dominica and her students thank you uh dominica if you're still in amsterdam have a good time a glass of white wine over the canal coffee in the morning then walking uh, i bet you're going to those art galleries anyway uh, uh keep us informed on all fronts european simon i think it's simon lockyer i've just got regard simon wonders about a a series on the role of uh, for the this would be on patreon on the role of union leaders going back to the supposed powerful ones of the 60s and 70s jack jones arthur scargill jimmy reed uh, jones was supposedly the most powerful man in england did they really have that power they thought or were perceived to have had? And uh, were they short-sighted, whereas Thatcher played the long game? Uh, yeah, that would be a great uh, and underexplored area, Simon. Let me think about it. As I say, the bonus for Patreon in March is going to be our uh, get-together, and you will all have a link if you subscribe for that evening. Uh uh, it's a Wednesday in early May. Yeah, it's a good idea, though. Um, I, I'm, I've made a note of it, Simon. OK, now we're going over to Dublin. We're going all over the place with this one. Stephen Murray. Uh, yeah, Stephen Murray, the friend, that friendly orthodontist. We need an orthodontist in this cooperative. And Stephen, when I come to Dublin, I'm at well consult you on your areas of expertise. However, Listening to your podcast while my car is going through the national car test, the Irish version of the MOT. Wish me luck, though I'll probably have the verdict before you read this. Well, I hope you have had the verdict before I read it, Stephen, or else that car's in a lot of trouble. Can you explain why the government almost never have someone available for discussions of the items on Newsnight? Do they all have to have an early night, or did Kirsty Walk do something to upset them? Actually, Stephen, I can understand from a government point of view why they don't put ministers up for Newsnight. Ministers on an interview round already have an insane media schedule. In fact, I'm going to do a podcast about uh, the political interview at some point, because the number of outlets at breakfast time that some ministers have to do is enough to drive probably already mad people madder you know it's not just the today program on radio 4 it's you know gb news breakfast news talk tv lbc some people tell me that they sort of set the alarm for half five begin these interviews stagger out of the last one at about 10 o'clock and they are completely dazed and then if their media people say, oh, could you do Newsnight at 11 o'clock that same evening? It will add to the madness. I mean, the audience is quite small. They will only make news if there's trouble. So I can kind of understand it. Now, Andrew Anderson uh, listened, I think, to the Douglas Alexander interview. Now, Andrew, I think, is a supporter of independence. And he says, it's too early to be sure how much the SNP party finance investigation will impact on the election next year. Whisper it, but Hamza Youssef has been quietly impressive in his first outings. Well, has he been, Andrew? I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, reading a lot of negative stuff about his start. But, but of course, context explains a lot. When you start in this context, it's quite hard to get positive ratings. But you give him one. But I, I said several times that 
Douglas was being was an inevitably subjective interviewee, you know, a Labour candidate in Scotland. Uh, you too are subjective. We all are. That's why impartiality is such a weird, elusive term as well. Anyway, if the SNP crisis hyperbole turns out to have little substance, he'll be well-placed to profit from the low expectations set for him. Although Douglas Alexander is correct that the prospect of Labour winning at Westminster will boost their vote in Scotland, my prediction for what it's worth is Labour picking up 8 to 10 seats, but falling short of a majority in England, landing us back in interesting times yeah it's one of the things i'll be looking at in the brighton show on monday a hung parliament and those implications god yeah tom h i'm a student in london i listen to your podcast while making pasta my go-to easy meal i gather i was going to look at inflation this week but i decided to focus on ra but um i gather tom pasta doubled in price while britain is keeping getting back control active in student politics myself i share your and other listeners concerns for the state of the country not only is the economy in a poor situation but there are a number of other crises that the uk needs to proactively meet such as climate change Yet to me, there seems to be quite a clear first step. People usually talk about voting systems and other constitutional reforms as a means of ensuring fair representation. But it can also be much more. It may be a means of ensuring stability, responsibility, informed decision-making and creativity throughout all levels of government. Greater devolution to regions, for instance, may produce creative local solutions to national issues and engage many more stakeholders to grow the human capital to secure this. Well, um, on devolution, I, uh, one of the first interviews I did in our uh, second podcast series, which began in January, was with Andy Burnham. And it, it, being mayor of Greater Manchester has really freed him up to, to argue more daringly and do more daring things. So I agree with you about that one, Tom. Um, l- listen back, if you haven't, to we did in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative a couple of electoral reform specials uh, last year. I'm with you, but just. I've been converted, actually, by listeners, but I it's not going to happen, and I have reservations in spite of my conversion. And finally, Jonathan Marcus, uh, one interesting issue raised by the chaos within the SNP is will Labour's need to appeal north of the border encourage something firmer to be said on the UK-EU relationship? Yeah, that's interesting. Keith from Finchley uh, raised the same issue. In other words, uh, Keir Starmer's pretty rigid line on Brexit is is not going to be helpful to those in Scotland who are opposed to Brexit and through which the SNP was still a kind of, is still a a vehicle. It depends really what form this implosion of the SNP takes. If Andrew, who we just heard from, who lives in Edinburgh, is right and it's not going to be substantial, maybe the SNP will remain a potent vehicle in the Brexit debate in Scotland. However, if the crisis remains deep within the SNP, 
uh, I, I mean, I think there are ways in which Labour can in, uh, reframe the arguments about that Johnson-Frost Brexit, as we've discussed here many times. It's a disaster. And a disaster from the governing party should be a gift to the opposition. And I think there are ways in which they could really go in for it without, you know, alienating that red wall they're obsessed by. And obviously, in doing so, that would cement the sort of Scottish Labour case because it wouldn't be quite so rigid. Oh, yeah, Brexit. Yeah, now a good thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Just ways of focusing in on the catastrophe of the Frost Johnson deal, a prime minister with a wayward attention span and an unelected mediocrity negotiating arguably the most historically significant deal since 1945 for the UK, and it's unsurprisingly terrible. So, yeah, framing arguments, the use of terms, what these terms mean, we end as we began. There is it, actually in opposition, precision isn't a key. There needs to be a degree of artistic evasiveness because you're trying to maximise support. But as I say on Brexit, the artistic evasiveness should not exclude exposing your opponent's ineptitude, which is uh, uh, where I think Brexit can land for Labour across the UK, actually. Anyway, look, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Do leave a review. I'm sorry if the birds have disturbed our time together. And don't put that in the review, just so you like it uh, a lot, because that helps, apparently. And hope to see some of you in uh, Brighton and Hove on Monday or at King's Place in London on May the 15th. You can get the tickets in the blurb for this podcast and on the relevant theatres' websites. And, yeah, let's get together soon. A lot going on some of it more subterranean than the epic dramas of last year but that makes them darker more mysterious and interesting thanks so much see you all soon bye